this would be a decision that would rip our country apart. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Seslow. This is hopefully going to be the weekly roundup <laughs> where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truths you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they are shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the roundup, Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. mission to the U.N. and at the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. She has served as senior policy sanctions advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She's an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world stories in a fun and easy way. And she occasionally moonlights over at MSNBC. God, that's a mouthful. Hi. Thanks Hi. for being here. Thank you for that <laughs> very exuberant intro. And also returning to the roundup is the highly sought-after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, MSNBC political analyst, our good friend, Susan Del Percio. Susan, as always, it's great to see you. Good morning. It's great to be here. Also, both of you have guest-hosted Politicology, which I just thought about this morning on the way over. So feel free to take over at any point. <laughs> the end of the year, <laughs> Ron. the end of the year. Anything, All right. Are you planning on leaving happen. the show right now? <laughs> Currently, no. Up first this week, the Colorado Supreme Court rules Donald Trump is ineligible to be president or at least on their ballot. We'll get into the importance of the rule of law, even if and especially when it makes politics harder. Then Congress pushes negotiations on a deal on immigration reform and foreign military aid to the new year. We'll talk about the impasse and the reports that Xi Jinping told President Biden China is going to reclaim Taiwan. Later, we'll look at the shocking data on Holocaust denialism among younger Americans and the anti-Semitism being taught in public schools. After the main show, we'll head over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about this 17,000-word essay James Bennett, the former editor of the New York Times opinion department, wrote. It's a scathing analysis of the Times and their illiberal bias. Join us for that discussion, plus more ad-free episodes all on a private podcast feed. Go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open the show notes for this episode and click the link right at the top. Uh, before we dive in, I just wanted to say I had so much fun responding to, talking about your questions, comments, thoughts, reviews, et cetera, uh, with Mike in our episode last week. So we're going to do that again. Um, please keep them coming in, and you can still send us an email. But we've actually set up a Google Voice line now. So uh, you can also give us a call at 202-455-4558 with any questions or thoughts, uh, episode reviews. We love to hear from you, and we might even include it in our next mailbag. Try to keep them somewhere in and around the neighborhood of 30 seconds uh, so they don't get too long. But um, we're really looking forward to expanding that episode format. On Tuesday... The Colorado Supreme Court ruled that Donald Trump, A, engaged in an insurrection, B, is disqualified from being president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and C, can't appear on the primary ballot under state law because he can't hold the office. In the majority decision, which was 4-3, they cited an opinion written by Neil Gorsuch when he was an appeals court judge. Gorsuch recognized, quote, a state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process that permits, permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. So 
they have stayed their ruling until January 4th, meaning basically the uh, effect is on pause until January 4th, 2024, which is the deadline to certify the content of the presidential primary ballot in Colorado. It's got to go to print at some point. If the Supreme Court decides to review it before January 4th, which is almost a certainty, the stay will remain in place until there's a ruling from SCOTUS and the Secretary of State will be required to include Trump's name on their primary ballot. The case was brought by a group of Republican and unaffiliated voters, so not Democrats, who petitioned the court to keep Donald Trump off the ballot. In mid-November, the Denver District Court ruled that Trump had engaged in an insurrection, but that the president wasn't one of the offices outlined in the 14th Amendment. The state Supreme Court ruled that it is. Trump has already said that he plans to appeal the ruling to the court. Uh, So I will just note, I've had my eye on this case in particular, and the larger argument uh, that Trump isn't eligible to be president for several months, at least going back to September, October, um, when the very long uh, academic paper was published by uh, Paulson and Bode. We've talked about it on the show a bunch, um, and I've spent hours, sort of days at this point, listening to um, intricate legal arguments about the originalist uh, sort of analysis of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, um, by some of the nation's top scholars. I'm persuaded, convinced by the conservative arguments for this. But one of the reasons for that, that we need to talk about this today, is the potential for really ugly blowback. On Tuesday, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick suggested that they remove Joe Biden from the ballot in Texas. Speaker Mike Johnson called the Colorado ruling a thinly veiled partisan attack. Uh, Tom Tillis has proposed legislation that would withhold federal election administration funds from states misusing the 14th Amendment for political purposes. That's a quote. And right now, the more vocal Democrats have been cheering the ruling on. Former House impeachment managers Jimmy Raskin and Ted Lieu have both praised the decision as solidly rooted in fact and law. And it's going to be interesting if they stick to that, if Trump is actually going to be disqualified and Biden has to run against a better general election candidate. So the way I see the political cross pressure here is you have Republicans obviously outraged for obvious reasons, even though I think they're legally constitutionally misguided, I'm not a lawyer. But then you also have some Democrats, and I would argue they're in the consulting class uh, and operative class in Washington, D.C., who don't want this to happen because they see Donald Trump as the strongest uh, opportunity for them to win again. They don't want to run against anybody else. So, Susan, why don't you start? <laughs> what do you expect? So, we can, we can talk about the legal pieces of this if you want to. Um, and I think I'm familiar enough with it to brief out the conflicts over each piece, if you're interested in doing that. But I think probably the most useful thing is to talk about the politics of this and the political blowback. If, e- either way, if he is to be ruled ineligible and if he is left on the ballot and these contests continue. So, Yeah, so... What was interesting about the court's decision and really what the Supreme Court will have to act on is it's a simple disqualification as if you're not 35. You have to be 35. You have to be an American citizen. You can, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger can never run for president. And this is simply another thing that can disqualify you from serving on the ballot. The other thing is, let's keep in mind, because we talk national politics, this is only in the state of Colorado. Several states, this has already been dismissed. There are about a dozen states where it's in limbo, but and this decision will certainly push it on the agenda for for many people. But there is an argument, and I'm not I, I'm not a lawyer, 
And I think constitutionally, it sounds like they're from real scholars that there is a case to say he is disqualified. However, this would be a decision that would rip our country apart. That's not to say that SCOTUS isn't afraid of ripping our country apart. They just recently did when it comes to Dobbs. Politically, it looks good for Trump initially. Keeps his base, you know, they can go after him. And until January 4th, that also means that the primary can, other primary candidates, <laughs> they get no oxygen. This is it. Um, and none of them have taken any real stand except to say the judges are liberal and it was a bad decision. There is something to be said that the voters should decide. There really is. And I can't say it's the right legal thing to do, but there is a way of the court throwing it back to the voters. And that's basically pointing to the issue of having Congress decide by two-thirds majority that he was an insurrectionist and doesn't belong on the ballot. I actually think it's going to help, help Joe Biden in the end. I think this ruling, Colorado, and whatever the Supreme Court decides, will end up helping Joe Biden. Because Donald Trump voters, 20, they voted for him in 2016, 2020, they're voting for him again in 2024. He is not going to increase that number very much, but he's going to keep it. He has kept them engaged, especially by acting like an incumbent. Biden, on the other hand, when you look at his numbers, I won't even get into the Republicans and independents for Biden. Just among Democrats, they are not thrilled with Biden. They are not energized by it. It's not to say they're going to vote for Trump. I'm not suggesting that. But could they stay home? You betcha. And one of the issues that kept people engaged in 2018 was abortion and democracy. And I think Biden can really use the issue of our democracy is on, on the line. And people will start to comprehend it now more than ever by seeing it go to the Supreme Court. Okay. I see that. I want to dismiss a few low-hanging fruit pieces of criticism that I've seen about this floating around in the, the, the interwebs and on TV, which is there's a whole bunch of hand-wringing going on about whether or not Donald Trump incited insurrection. That, for legal purposes, doesn't matter. And I just want to, like, if you're listening to this and you've seen some of the talking heads talk about, oh, well, especially Republicans, he didn't incite an insurrection. There's been no conviction of insurrection. Those things aren't required under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The plain reading of the text just says he has to have engaged in an insurrection. So what you need in the finding of fact is that there was an insurrection. We have that. Uh, and it's not defined in the section, uh, in Section 3. And that he engaged in it or gave aid and comfort to enemies thereof, which would be thereof would be the Constitution. So, so you can dismiss all of those criticisms. They don't, they, they don't hold water. Um, as for, so Susan, I think, you're, I think a lot of things are true here. Um, this would tear the country apart. But you know what else tore the country apart? Brown v. Board of Education. And we are sort of all in agreement that we're better off for that decision. Right. So I think there are lots of reasons that there are lots of really good arguments that this could not hold and that he could be permitted to run. I, I think they're wrong. But one reason that this can't be dismissed is the politics. That's my view. I don't think that you can. I think Judge Ludig was on MSNBC yesterday uh, and said this isn't a political decision before the court. It's a legal one. It has to be a legal one. Uh, because if we're 
going to explicitly start making politics or the health of the country uh, or what this would do a reason to override the Constitution, which is not a suggestion, it is the supreme law of the land already, um, then we're in, in an even worse place. Okay, so Hagar, <laughs> how does this impact the way the rest of the world thinks about the U.S. as we're wrestling with democracy and threats to it? Well, it depends who in the world is watching. And so if you are Russia and China right now, then you're watching this and you're getting excited and you're thinking, great, you all are doing the job for us to make it seem like the great experiment is going to fail and that democracy is actually not a good system and that it undermines rule of law and that there is no freedom under democracy and so on and so forth. And that's precisely why Russia and China interfere in our affairs in general and interfere in our elections because any kind of division or anything that sows confusion and chaos only helps them with retaining their own power back home because any effort, any dissent to them, they can say, well, look at what's happening in the United States, the beacon, the alleged beacon of democracy. And look at, look at how people are fighting. What if it turns violent? What if you have uh, people rioting at, at, at polling places because they can't vote for Donald Trump and they want to, for example. And I really believe that something like that could happen. Um, and I don't even think that's the worst of it, but but um, so that's how they're going to see it. When you, if you look at at more like our our allies and so on and so forth, listen, all of our allies are are dealing with themselves with elections that are becoming increasingly difficult because of an increasing um, far right influence, and 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 that's and we can go into later, and and I would love to touch base on it later as to why that is the case, but. So they may be a bit more sympathetic given their own issues with their own democracies. But the problem of where, where that'll play out is that when we go around the world and we say, and we do this all the time, and we go to Venezuela, for example, and we say, hey, you need to have free and fair elections that need to be internationally monitored. And this, by the way, this just happened. This was part of a deal with Venezuela that the U.S. brokered. They, they suspended sanctions for six months in exchange for some prisoners released, who, by the way, were released today and that Maduro hold free and fair elections monitored by international observers. Well, Maduro could look at us and be like, oh yeah, why don't you start with yourselves first? And, and so then we end up losing credibility in achieving what we claim to be some of our greatest values and greatest mission abroad. Our policies, our foreign policy, for better or worse, uh, is really rooted in pushing American values, pushing democracy, pushing human rights, and of course, achieving national security objectives above all else. But, but, but it's rooted in that. And, and it will all start to crumble if they see something like this play out and, and become worse. Here's where I see a big challenge. Um, either way this goes, in the eyes of someone like Vladimir Putin, all you have to do is amplify the blowback to point the finger. Whether, whether the decision is the right one or the wrong one, is the legal one, is the convenient one, however they decide, you're still going to have some amount of blowback. And you can sort of point the finger in either direction and it still makes the US look hypocritical, right? Think about this. If he's removed from the ballot, then you obviously have the uprising on the right and it will be violent and vicious and it will, as Susan said, tear the country apart. Um, and that's very easy to exploit. If he is left on the ballot, then you have a very legitimate challenge to the idea that America is a rule of law country, mm -hmm. right? So either way this goes, it seems to me we are going to be vulnerable to attacks from adversaries of the U.S. Yeah, basically we've opened a really bad can of worms. <laughs> and I, you know, it's funny, when I was reading all the articles about this and watching this out play out, I found myself 
seeing both sides of the argument and not coming to my own opinion, other than that, I think it's very clear, and I agree with Susan, that that this will tear the, the country apart, and I just don't see how it won't. And um, and and as I'm reading, I'm thinking to myself, well, well, you know, Republicans want state rights. They want the states to be more powerful. So there you go. This is what happened. This is what happened. And by the way, this is should be a legal argument. And this is what's in the Constitution. And the Constitution should be held up. But even I found myself thinking, even though it's not required, thinking, well, if there had been a case where he was found guilty, wouldn't that have made it much simpler? And because then there wouldn't have been any space for people to question it as much. And and you were definitely going to have that. Plus, if it was earlier, I still I'm still hooked on the fact that it's why is it now? This happened in 2020. We he announced that he was running for re-election in early 2021. Why did it take this long? So there's a reason for that because there's no mechanism to stop someone from being on the ballot until they file their paperwork to do so. There has to be a decision point where someone with authority to act on behalf of the state can say, oh, no, this is not permitted. But you could at least start building support, at least start chumming the water, if you will, on oh, the issue. You could have, yes. this could have been built up before this summer is what yeah. I'm saying. So I think not a lot of people were giving much credence to this old and underused or underappreciated provision of the Constitution until Bowdoin Paulson wrote that sort of groundbreaking argument, 200 and something, 86 pages long uh, uh, white paper, um, law review article, which was, I think, in September or something. This wasn't even a conversation. But almost as soon as that was published, you had you know people like Akhil Amar at Yale uh, doing a an excruciatingly thorough analysis of the logic chain involved and coming out the other end, seeing, wow, this has real legitimacy. So the politics of it look terrible. You're right. And to, to, to the vast majority of Americans are going to look like, oh, wow, we're only just now talking about this. How couldn't we couldn't figure this out before? So there's a, there's a, a lot of tension, I think, between the optics and the law here. And, um, whew, um, there's been there's also been a lot of really good commentary, I think. Re there's been a lot of really bad commentary, too. Um, so maybe we'll put some links to some of the better commentary uh, sort of for and against in the show notes today. If you if you want to become more familiar with this, I would highly suggest you do that. Um, but one of the things our friend George Conway noted yesterday, and I think he wrote a piece about this in The Atlantic, is that if you want to understand the, the strength of the arguments, um, look at the dissents in the opinion from the Colorado case because they're beyond weak, because they don't address the, 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 the most substantive questions in the, uh, in the argument, which are, is he an officer under the United States? Was there insurrection? And did he engage in it? They don't touch those questions at all. They try to get rid of it on procedural grounds. Uh, and, um, and George says that's sort of a betrayal of just how strong the arguments are here. So, you know, just one other yeah. thing, and I'm not saying that this affected any of the justices' decisions, but there have already been calls of violence against these judges. These judges, what they had to go through to make their decision must have been excruciating because they knew what the effect it would have on their family. And I just, I think we have to look at it, even if you, dis even if they dissented, all of them were, were very strong for taking this on. Yeah, and they wrote about understanding the stakes of the decision in the opinion. They, right. they were very clear about this. And, you know, as legal opinions go, sometimes you read them and, like, they're, they're you know, flippant or they're, you know, you have some really immature comments sometimes, especially in state courts. There was not a snide remark in this opinion. Uh, it, was, it was very sort of 
um, respectfully written with a lot of deference. Well, it was written to go to the Supreme Court. It was written Court. to go to the Supreme Court. <laughs> yes, they quoted Gorsuch in their uh, opinion, said like, uh, you, guys, yeah. you guys are going to have to figure this out, hot potato. And now Adam Serwer wrote yesterday, which I thought was uh, quite shrewd, uh, that the the uh, originalist court is now going to have to put its money where its mouth is. I'm paraphrasing. But um, this is, and I've said this before, this is a conservative, originalist, textualist argument uh, that is going to be very difficult to evade using the court's own preferred legal uh, framework. So uh, I don't know where we go from here, uh, but it's going to happen pretty quickly. So January 4th is the deadline. Um, We should also note, hanging in the background of all this is Jack Smith's question about whether Trump is immune from prosecution for some of these other things, they may decide all of this at once and say, you know, maybe he's not immune, but maybe he can be on the ballot. I I don't know. Well, just to also add to the political uh, fabric right now, the other decision the court has to make is on birth control. Oh, yeah. So never seen the name of this Pephestrone something. And that's why I don't try. Ah, Okay. okay. But in the end, I mean, a lot of women now, it's the preferred method of receiving, me- you know, a medication to, to terminate the pregnancy. Again, however the judges vote on this, you are making democracy and abortion the front and center issue. And I think it will be very interesting to see how Team Biden responds, because it is hard. You want to say what you've done. You have to prove yourself as an incumbent. But. Wow. There's one other thing we should note, which is it's not like there is no way out for Trump or there is no recourse if the court decides that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment attaches to him and that he is uh, and that he is ineligible. The Constitution also provides, the same article also provides that Congress may remove such disability, meaning that if you really want him to be able to run, you can remove. You can. You can say he can run. Well, Congress. that's the out. Get up and do your job if you actually think that. Right. That's, that's the that, out. That's the out. That's the nine zero decision. Right. That is how you get out of it. They all. None of them want to be doing this. But six um, three would be disastrous. Nine zero would not be ideal. It's. Yeah. But that's how they get out of it. Yeah. So I there is there is some speculation that they may decide this on. I think what is called a per curiam. Uh, decision, which I think is a Latin phrase for for the court, it's one in which the uh, the opinion is unsigned, and you don't know what the you don't know what the back and forth was, you don't know what the dissents were. All you get is an opinion from the court with no names attached to it. They may choose to go that route, although it's it's usually used for more uncontroversial opinions because in the controversial ones, you really want to know why they're saying what they're saying. Uh, but that's you know to your point about the politics, that may be one way for them to. Um, temper. Uh, although I, I'm not sure that would work. <sighs> Any other thoughts, Hagar, before we change to, I, I could talk about this for ages, but. Um. No, for me, what, what I, what I, what I found, found striking as well, in addition to this, was that all the Republican candidates came out, all of them, including Chris Christie, those who really despise Trump and came out and said, this is, this is something that should be decided by vote. Um, so they came out re- basically against this. And I, I, I still found that a little surprising. Yeah. There was no, not one of them who even wavered on that just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I guess I could see the argument why. Maybe they feel, 
not that any of them led insurrections, but but perhaps they feel that it's an attack on. They're right? all like, going after the Trump voter. Of course, that's what they're going to say. They, I mean, Chris Christie did it because he wants to keep his bona fides as a Republican and and his legal stance. But everyone else wants those voters, and some of them want them in 2028. So. Oh, that's why they haven't attacked Trump. It's to me, it's it's not surprising at all because it's the same reason they haven't attacked Trump since January. Mm. Yeah, although Chris Christie's been trying. No, I yeah. uh, the exception. And he's a lawyer, so it's Christie. kind of surprising that he's not. Yeah, but he, he Chris Christie still has to show after the race that he's a Republican, so he get his gigs, and it, there's a lot there. But <laughs> there's a lot there. But putting that aside, <laughs> but putting, but I mean, there's no reason for the Republican candidates to to go after Trump on this one. It's much easier to oh, yeah. say yeah. what they did. Yeah, you're right. I know that there are a lot of listeners out there who have tons of questions about this. So maybe this is a good opportunity to go send us an email or leave us a voicemail. Maybe we'll get to some of those questions in a, uh, another future episode because there's. There's a ton of stuff to discuss uh, about this. Okay. Also on Tuesday, Congress gave up on their efforts to reach a deal on border security, immigration reform, and more emergency funding for Ukraine before the end of the year, and also Israel, and also Taiwan. For weeks, Senator James Langford, Chris Murphy, and Kirsten Sinema have been trying to hammer out a deal on immigration policy, Senate Republicans have tied Ukraine security assistance, as well as Israel and Taiwan aid to immigration reform. We've talked about that on the Roundup. Uh, the Washington Post is reporting that the senators and White House are considering toughening criteria for, pre for presenting an asylum claim, requiring more migrants to wait in a third country while their claims are processed, making it easier to remove people who cross the border illegally and prevent an, quote, overly broad presidential use of humanitarian parole. This is one thing I'm not super familiar with, uh, humanitarian parole by the president. President Biden said he's willing to make significant concessions. It's a quote. Republicans have the leverage here to link the foreign aid and immigration policy because there's been record levels of migration this year. It's been poorly controlled, to say the least, by the Biden administration. And public opinion has turned against Biden on immigration now quite severely. Those three senators are having a hard time putting together a package with enough border enforcement measures to bring Republicans on board, but not alienate too many Democrats. Uh, Biden's now being attacked by some progressives, surprise, surprise, for even engaging. It's yet to be seen how many Democratic votes get a proposal, uh, a proposal can get. Um, and then on the right, there's a group of House Republicans who have said they won't accept anything less than a ban on presidential use of humanitarian parole, which would also apply to Afghans and Ukrainians who have been authorized to live in the U.S. for humanitarian reasons. And finally, House Republican leaders have been pushing the Senate to end the negotiations on a border security package with funds for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, and to only include money for Israel. So, Hagar, why don't you kick this one off, and then we'll get to the, the migrants coming across the border crisis in a minute. But what are the stakes of aid not going through immediately? How desperate are the situations in each of these places that are waiting on aid? Uh, and what do you make of the maneuvering to negotiate, to tie border security to essentially border security in other places? First of all, can I say I'm so much more excited about this topic because I feel like I'm in my element. Ah. I'm like comfortable now. <laughs> I was getting <laughs> sweating before. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not good with constitutional amendments. <laughs> much more comfortable in the foreign policy world. So um, I'm really, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, 
let's start with a little bit of a so a backgrounder on the aid because you let's start backwards a little bit. Ukraine is in dire need of aid. They are running out of ammunition very quickly. A lot of experts say that they'll run out by February or March. Uh, but there are also reports saying that there are certain instances now where they're not fighting back against certain Russian attacks because of uh, low amounts of ammunition. So they need a, a, an, an ample supply of ongoing of ammunition, weapons, drones, and so on. And then, uh, and then you have Israel as well, of course. Israel, they just received another shipment of weapons and ammunition. I will say the Israel, the relationship with Israel is something, it's a non-NATO ally, has been since 1987. They receive $3.8 billion a year in military aid, which is 16% of their defense budget. And I'm a little less worried about them because theirs is kind of already factored in if you will, the support for Israel. This is additional support, um, number one. And number two, Israel itself, as I said, this is 16% of its defense budget, which isn't small, but it's also, they don't rely 100% on USAID. They are very strong on their own and they buy arms from elsewhere as well. So that's that's the case with Israel. Um, the aid for them is really more to show ongoing support, that, that that the United States stands behind its effort to defeat Hamas, and that on top of it, by the way, that that aid is actually aims to be helpful in being, in, in supporting more targeted strikes, in being more precise and surgical as the U.S. is pressuring Israel to do. So that's that. Um, about a couple weeks ago, the Senate uh, failed to pass a bill that would have given $50 billion in aid to Ukraine and some of it to Israel as well. And it lost by one vote. And the argument that Senate Republicans made was, well, there isn't any money in there to for the southern border, and this is our own crisis. It's both a national security crisis as well as a homeland security crisis. And without that, we don't want to compromise on the rest. And I... I'm going to be I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't I don't really disagree with that because the thing is only 2 3 weeks ago and I I by the way I would have thought this even before what the FBI director said 2 3 weeks ago which I'm about to explain about about a month ago 2 3 weeks ago FBI director Chris Ray came out and said that the terrorist threat in the United States has not been this high in a long time. Oof. And that's following the October 7 Hamas terrorist attack in Israel. And 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 that's typical, unfortunately. That was the first thing I thought of when I saw this. And I knew how Israel res would respond. I knew how the U.S. was going to respond. And the first thing that comes after that is that, oh, well, we're going to go after the U.S. And you're already seeing a lot of that, a lot of that in public discourse, on social media, and uh, banter um, in, in the Middle East, and, and, and frankly, banter here in the United States. Um, and so so I expected that that to happen. But then he said something that really concerned me. And he said, the terrorist threat, that, that, that we have a significant terrorist threat at the border, at the southern border. And this number is not well known, but apparently somewhere around 130, 134 individuals on the terrorist list tried to come across the border and were apprehended. Now, that's not the same as sanctioned known terrorists. That's people they were watching. That is still concerning nonetheless. Yeah. Why on earth were they trying to come illegally across the border? Clearly, they knew they couldn't come through JFK. So, If less than 1% of the people on the watch list turn out to be actual bona fide terrorists who want to, I don't know, crash planes into buildings, well, yeah, not great. Bye. Right. And, and the FBI... They're really good at this. I, that's all I'm going to say. They're very good at, at, at identifying who could be a problem and monitoring that person and preventing them from causing problems here. And so when the FBI director comes out and says, 
this is a problem at the southern this this is a problem at the southern border and we have to be very careful that is a message that the biden administration and everybody needs to heed so i don't have a problem for this one for this situation because the threat at the border is a national security threat. is a national security problem and and we do have we we have a priority to keep our homeland safe to keep our citizens safe especially when we're dealing with this foreign terrorist threat so i don't have a problem with putting all the money together that's okay it's it's the thing that concerns me in general is being blasé about the aid to ukraine in particular this is number 1 and i i heard you um, speak with Molly McHugh about this, and she said something that I can't stress enough, which is this is, we need to win this war. It is not a joke. It, folks on the Hill, Republicans on the Hill, and, and, and some of their voters, understandably, the voters, they're not thinking about what could happen if Ukraine loses this war. They're thinking, well, I uh, gas prices are going up, and I've got my own issues, and, and there's inflation, and there's the border, and so on. And these all these are issues that really matter that will likely drive their vote, not foreign policy. But the fact is that if Ukraine loses, we're going to see not just Putin pursue other land grabs or other undermining other democracies all dictators and you're already seeing it which I'll get to next because I don't I don't want to I don't want to monopolize so um I'll get that in the in the next question yes so the that's that's what's at stake here and I'm concerned because for Zelensky to have to beg this much and for it to be this difficult I'm concerned about it going forward I think they'll they'll pass this aid package I believe they'll compromise it's in Biden's interest to compromise having the migration like this doesn't help him in his campaign as it hasn't in campaigns across the world where migration is becoming a real sticking point for for political candidates in in their elections but I, for that, they're going to struggle all year for aid to Ukraine. And this concerns me because Putin is watching that and he's thinking, well, maybe I'll outlive this. Maybe I can, you know, play this up. Maybe I can try and help Trump win this election with my own interference, with some kind of AI efforts or I don't know, whatever he'll do. And um, and that's concerning, just not understanding why it's so important. The last thing I'll say about this is that the Ukraine war, a friend of mine said this and it really struck me, is is the deal of this, uh, helping Ukraine in this war is the deal of the century. And the reason is because you have an entire population that is willing to die for democracy, for freedom, for its land, of course, as well, um, and without us committing any troops there. And so they are fighting, of course, for their own land, but it's for democracy and freedom around the world. And therefore, the investment into them is worth it. So much I want to dig into there. I haven't so, even gotten into China. <laughs> I know we haven't even gone to China, and I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But but first, there's one thing. So we need to talk about immigration policy. And what I was going to ask you is what does it say about sort of the public opinion around immigration uh, that that Republicans have so much leverage to, to, to tie this together in the first place. But on the border security piece, I'm now starting to see um, – and this is unverified. I just started to see it this morning, but videos of migrants on commercial flights from the border to New York that aren't going through the same kinds of security checks, health checks that ordinary people would at airports. Uh, and they're shipping them to New York. They're shipping them all over the place. Um, whether or not that's... It, the optics of this are very, very bad aside from the national security threats. So my real question that I want to like really makes me angry is why can't Democrats get over themselves on border security? Why can't they just get over it and secure the border? Because right now they don't know how to message border security versus uh, immigration issues. 
That's the They're case. They're very different things? They are very, very, very different things. And yet, when there's a photo or video with no <laughs> explanation, it looks all the same. And that's part of the problem. I think that Biden is eager to make a deal on the issue of homeland security. Without a doubt, I mean, and I should adding border security to that. But the, he does have pushback from the left, but I think he's willing to, to go after it and, and, and take it if he has to. But the issue of immigration is going to be front and center during this election from the Republican side. And the difference this election versus elections prior is that migrants are now in New York, in Georgia, in Chicago. They are, it's now, and, and then it, they, they, it branches out into the suburbs. So now all of a sudden you have a lot of suburbs. You remember this on a look ahead some number of <laughs> weeks ago that it's going to be about the suburbs. And so that's why, I guess I'm looking far ahead, <laughs> <laughs> further ahead, but that's, that is going to, that is going to affect the, you know, be very helpful to the Republicans. Let's put it that way. Having those images of the migrants in the, in the suburbs, this deal needs to happen and it probably will. And I know everyone's looking towards speaker Johnson. He has shown the ability to move things that are necessary. The problem is, is this is now going to fall right into the government shutdown. Oof. So it will be interesting to see how the politics of that, which is one of the reasons why they really, Senate really wanted to get it done before the holiday, was to at least have something to, to work on immediately in the new year with the House. This is now going to be all wrapped up into one. I, 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 from a communication standpoint, that's exactly what the Republicans should do mm. from, from their point of view. Right. The Democrats don't have enough messaging or strong enough messaging on separating the issues and then parsing it further, immigration versus border security. Well, they're also not unified in what they want. So that exacerbates the messaging problem. If you have progressives who don't even want it, who, there are some progressives who actually want, quote unquote, open borders. They, they actually don't want to solve them. Oh, look no further than the, so, the primary of 2020, the Democratic primary of 2020. A lot of them raised their hands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they so, did. They so, said open borders are okay. We talked recently. I, I, think it, I think Mike and I talked about how we often talk about the Democrats as having a messaging problem. And, oh, if only we could say better what we, what we want. No, they, no they have a policy problem. It's not that they can, should they say it better? It's that they, they have nothing to say. Right. Because they can't make their policy tangible and better. Right. Which, is a, which is a political problem. Right. Your policy they, problem is your political problem. And I'm beginning to see that it's not so much a messaging problem. And, and the issue is, is that, you know, Democrats tend to want to fight nationally. Yeah. Believe, and and Republicans want to fight state by state, legislature by legislature. So they build up, whereas Democrats are happy if it trickles down. And we have protections against uh, that because we live in a federalist system. <laughs> so like, 
<laughs> I remember a conversation I had with Lucy some, I don't know, a year ago, maybe two years ago, like, hey, federalism is what we have. So why don't you start using it? Like Democrats, why don't you start organizing it, organizing at the state level and start using it? Actually, to your advantage the same way Republicans do, but <laughs> they'd prefer national um, solutions. Okay, so let's go back to China. So Wednesday, because this is all tied together, NBC News reports that Chinese President Xi Jinping bluntly told Biden during their meeting in San Francisco uh, that Beijing would unify Taiwan with mainland China, and it was only a matter of time. Uh, he also reportedly said that they haven't decided on the time frame. Uh, NBC uh, reporting cited three current and former U.S. officials in an exclusive story. The news came out the day after the Senate negotiations were punted to the new year. So immediately when I saw that, oh, the White House leaked something in order to get a deal on uh, immigration just to show how urgent it was that we get this aid deal done. Am I being a conspiracy theorist? Not really. I mean, there are planned leaks all the time. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I wouldn't I, I would I would I wouldn't put it past me. It's, it's, but why wouldn't we have heard about this sooner? Well, yeah, that's what I thought. You know, I have to so first, I want to take credit for this because <laughs> I, I, I really it. do. Because on Great. Monday I was interviewed and was asked for my predictions of 2024, my biggest prediction for 2024. And and this was this is Monday of this week. And <laughs> I said, I said, if I were China right now, if I were President Xi, watching what's happening in the world, watching watching all the US resources going to Ukraine and Israel, and and the fact that the U.S. itself can't even really agree on that and is struggling with giving resources to wars where it's very obvious we need help, then if I were President Xi, I would think, hmm, this is a good year for me to, to do something on Taiwan. And sure enough, two days later, NBC News stole my idea. Um, <laughs> so, and it's not a good idea. I don't want this idea to be stolen, but I just want to take credit for it. I came up with it first. <laughs> so I agree with you. When I saw this news, I, my first thought was like, wait, which summit? What are you talking about? This was a while ago. And on top of it, the report, if it's all true, which I don't have reason to question it, the report even has a part where apparently President Xi or his his aides told the Biden team, you know, and by the way, as we walk out of this meeting, we'd really like President Biden to say that he supports reunification. Yeah. And I was like, what? Could that really be true that they actually said that? Because to me, that if that's true and and if she, but even if they even if it's not some element of it is true, because she obviously said this to Biden and it's it, all of it points to the fact that they're living in this bubble a little bit of. Yeah, this is our plan. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to, something just splashed over, and I, I think it matters to this conversation. Uh, Politico is reporting that top U.S. general speaks to Chinese counterpart, ending freeze on military talks. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Just after we reopened them. So, yeah. Barely ending, reopened ending them. Ending the freeze. Ending the out year and a half freeze. So, okay. they, so they are talking. They are, they are talking. talking. Oh, okay, okay, okay. 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 So yes. I, I, I think that there's probably a reason for that. I wouldn't know what it is because a well, guard can answer that. Yeah. But it, it does kind of change a little bit yeah. of the calculus in how people look at things. Well, because when enemies talk, then they're not fighting. That's the core. That's why the U.S. has been really flocking to China over the last year. After the, Since the Chinese spy balloon incident, when all diplomacy fell apart, you've had a series of U.S. officials going to China to try and reopen talks and also to, to kind of treat them with kid gloves. You've seen them use words, right? They don't, they don't want to say anymore that they're 
um, that they are, uh, in, instead of saying that they don't want all the trade with China, they're saying, well, we're diversifying the supply chain, right? Like, they, Fire up the gab machine. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> so they're, they're treating them with kid gloves. The Chinese officials get very offended, right? They've gotten offended at, at, at Biden calling Xi a dictator, which in my opinion is really nothing more than a compliment to Xi, but, yeah. <laughs> but right? And um, I feel like he's sitting there thinking like, oh, stop. But <laughs> 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 um, it is a fact. But anyway, and so um, so they've been treating them a little bit with kid gloves for this reason, because when enemies are talking, typically they're not fighting. And so even if that means the policy is not good, the policy is not moving forward or it's not even in our favor, at least it's not fighting. Because when you're not talking, any miscalculation could happen. Mm. You could, and, and you've had that. Yep. We have reconnaissance planes in the South China Sea because contrary to Chinese government belief, it is not Chinese territory. <laughs> and so we have reconnaissance planes there. You've got multiple vessels there. Um, and so on. And so, and we don't want a run in to happen and that to, to evolve into some kind of confrontation of some kind. And so that's good news. That's, I, that's, I mean, clearly that's breaking news. And, and, and that has to be tied to this. I still believe that, that, that she will try something because even, and I don't mean it necessarily means that he's going to invade Taiwan in 2024, but even he alluded to it when he said he would like to reunify peacefully. And, and earlier this summer, for example, they imposed a blockade around Taiwan for, I think it was about three days. And it was a blockade, it was a both by land and, and air. Um, no, sorry, by sea and air, where they imposed this blockade basically to show that they could do it. And, um, and, and because they can. And so unless the U.S. is showing that they're willing to to really go in there beyond providing Taiwan with defenses, I think you're going to see more acts by the Chinese regime of that kind, where they're showing, we don't want anybody to, to forget that we have the upper hand here. This is not good. No, it's not good. <laughs> it's and I'm very not, sorry, it's as, not good. As and, far as talking, I'm just, this, this whole, like, this whole cocktail of, of, of conflicts around the world and our own inability to even, like, secure the border just spells for and then trump the 2024 is going to be one of the ugliest years i think of my life of your life of, oh. I, mean, I think this is going to be i agree so much is going so i mean i i hate saying the thing blow up but they it's just going these issues are exploding one you know one by one by one and it will all happen because we have done something that china and north korea and Russia have not been able to do. We have created more political instability in this country. For ourselves. <laughs> for ourselves. We're, I mean, think about the fight for speakership after McCarthy got kicked out. Imagine, we didn't, we didn't have a functioning branch of government. Of government. Yeah. Can you imagine even thinking that 10 years ago? Let's pile on to the political dysfunction. Yeah, let's do that. Earlier I make fun this of other month. countries for that. <laughs> I make fun of other countries for that all the time when they have these political impasses and no president. And I point the finger. And now the U.S. is making it very difficult for me to point the finger at other countries. <laughs> all right, Ron, what's next? There were some terrifying numbers. Uh, we, ran a, we ran a roundup episode several weeks ago titled The Kids Are Not Okay or The Kids Are Not oh, yeah. All Right. They're still really not all right. Uh, these numbers in the YouGov Economist poll show that one in five 18 to 29-year-olds in America believe the Holocaust is a myth. Uh, and that's more than double the next cohort, which is 30 to 44-year-olds. But an additional 
30%. So that brings it to half of 18 to 29-year-olds uh, said they do not know whether the Holocaust is a myth. So half of, half of adults, 18 to 29, either don't know if it happened or firmly believe it didn't happen. N nearly a third of that cohort said that Jews wield too much power in America. Uh, and they're five times more likely to say that Jewish people have too much power than people aged 65 and older. Uh, and these numbers were similar across education levels. So 20% is a staggering number. 50% saying it's either a myth or they don't know if it's a myth is mind-boggling. Um, there's a whole lot more I want to get into about what's happening in schools, but I'll just start there. What did you make of these numbers, Susan? It's horrifying. And when you start to try and figure out how, how could this be? Just as simple, like, how can this be? Because it's unfathomable. I mean, that I started thinking about it. Definitely, there's an education problem, no doubt. And we'll talk about that. But the other thing is, when you talk about 18 to 29-year-olds, make no mistake, those 29-year-olds were 21 when Donald Trump started coming on the scene and we had a national movement of disinformation. And it's not hard. These, this generation has been growing up on information, hearing information that's simply not true. So I, th and, and you could do it by yourself. You know, you, you can educate yourself on your computer. You can go where things take you. So it's not unusual for a cons leaning conservative young person to start looking at things and have a pop-up on the screen and go down a rabbit hole. It's not acceptable at any level, but I think our the education system and the political system that we've had in the last 10 years have or eight years have definitely lent itself to this problem. Top line takes. So I, you know, it's funny, I had the same, the same view. Well, first I was obviously absolutely horrified, horrified and really devastated because um, and I'm not gonna try and I'm not trying to make this about me. But my, you're also the only one of the three of us who's on TikTok, so. Well, so, <laughs> and that's, this is why, this, this is what I'm going to get to a little bit, so I have so my. tell us about the Utes. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, my media brand tries to focus on Gen Z in particular and young millennials, and with, after October 7, it, it made me, and again, this, I'm not trying to make this about me, but this is just an example to highlight this with what I was seeing in social media and what I was seeing with, with engagement and my, myself trying to engage directly with, with Gen Z and by the way, students as well. I'm a, an, an adjunct professor at Columbia, as you said, which has been kind of a tense hot zone for, for this issue. Um, there's this issue where they just don't believe you. And, and not only do they not believe you, so they don't know what, what's the truth anymore. They don't believe anything. They certainly don't believe anything coming out of the U S government and certainly not the Israeli government. But not only do they not believe you, but then there's this underlying anti-Semitism there or this underlying, and some of it is anti-Semitism, pure anti-Semitism, and some of it is, is, is more hatred for the Israeli government and a pro-Palestinian stance that is much more radical, by the way, than, than what was the pro-Palestinian cause in the past. And so anyway, that said, it has made me on my own question, my entire media brand, the mission of my media brand and the audience of my media brand, the target audience, because 
it feels like they're unteachable. And I've been saying this now for a few weeks and saying it to people. I'm like, I don't understand what to do. This It feels like they're unteachable and I don't understand why. They they used to, I used to explain and that they would listen and then there you go and that they could see that it was objective and informed by experience and so on. And now it's not the case at all for this issue specifically. And when I saw these articles, my first thought was clearly this is an education problem. And one article said it wasn't education because these individuals who were denying the Holocaust were coming from all kinds of levels of education. And to be honest with you, being at Columbia University, that that's very apparent to me. That's very obvious. This is one of the best universities in the United States. And and I was seeing it with my my very own eyes. And so you've got that. And then and so some others have said it's the proliferation of social media. And I I think that that's true where they they young the Ute, they 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 find certain influencers or or individuals who they they really trust and believe and hang on to, and it could be for a variety of reasons. Usually, it's tied to some kind of charisma and some kind of authenticity, and those individuals, a number of them, have said extremely concerning things about this conflict in particular, and have been painting the U.S. government as the criminal and have been using very inflammatory speech and so on. And I know this was this is more you're trying to talk about. Holocaust denialism altogether, but I think it's it's very clearly this conflict has has unearthed all of that. And, oh, absolutely! Yeah. Especially considering one of the 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 things, the top lines we hear all the time was October seventh was the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust, yeah. which means you have to believe in the Holocaust. Right. <laughs> right, and if you don't know what that is, or you think it was a myth to begin with, then you're just not you're just not getting any of it. Right. Um. And and Holocaust denial is is, is a huge piece of this, but I actually want to talk about the underlying educational problem like okay Susan's like how could this have happened well it turns out there probably are some really good indicators of how this has happened first before we turn to that I just have to say I have seen you engage on your social media handles with the insanity that is <laughs> lobbed vitriol. at you in the comments and I tip my hat to you because you. it is it is as gracious as you possibly can be when you're dealing with the most incendiary insane comments uh that just defy any sense of logic or reality and like i i've watched you try to do it and i can see oh my god i think this is actually one of the most difficult positions she's been in she started this brand yes because it's yes. It, it looks it looks painful it's painful frankly. it's so, painful and sometimes deep down sometimes i just want to yeah. scream yeah. or be snarky yeah. and then i'm like okay listen they don't understand yeah. and some people i'm able to at least and it's not about having them convincing no, them you're of not my argument you're not you're right. you're not trying to indoctrinate anybody you're right. trying to hear, hear the facts that are widely agreed yes. upon there's plenty of room for nuance and debate and different viewpoints and we should have all those out but here's the fact set that we have to begin from and you can't even get there no, it's hard. It's very hard. I would say it's the the rare person who then understands, who's like, oh, okay, right? Like maybe their views not changed, which is fine, but at least they've heard all the facts. And and it's it's a little it's it's painful for so many reasons because this conflict is so there's so much there to it and and experts in it and those who work in foreign policy it's not so black or white and yeah. yet you've got this mass movement of people who believe these things and by the way and and this ties actually to to one of the articles because one of the articles was detailing things that that teachers were teaching yeah, that's and by the way yeah. something that was it's and and you could argue well that's one teacher here and one teacher mm. there fine or maybe it's in New York City only or whatever but there was a and I don't want to jump ahead of this, but something from Brown University, a teaching, like a, a series of books yeah. and, and teaching method that had, that were using things that saying that 
that Israel, it's the occupying, occupying yeah, it's Palestine. All, it's all seen and, through this lens of, of, yes. of, of oppressor and victim. Mm-hmm. And this is, com- so if you are a, if you are a consistent listener to politicology and you pay attention to every conversation that we have here, you will have a very thorough understanding by now of where this comes from, because we've, we've teased it apart bit by bit. I had a long conversation uh, with Yasha Monk about his book, The Identity Trap, where he traces the intellectual uh, uh, origin of the of so much of the information, the, the worldview that has influenced the Gen Z uh, problem uh, that we're talking about. And then we had another phone call in the aftermath of October 7th, where we it was less academic and we we walked through exactly how we got from this ideology, which is an identitarian deconstructionist ideology, it, to the support, active support for uh October 7th's atrocities by Hamas. And there's a very coherent logic chain every step of the way. So it's not like this is happening in a vacuum. It's not like it for people who've been paying attention to it, it's not a surprise at all. So um but if you're just jumping into this and you're like, well, what are you talking about just beating up on the kids? Often change just happens with the kids and everybody else has to catch up. No, that's not what's happening here. So on Tuesday, the Free Press published an article about how schools are teaching anti-Semitism. And it opens by describing, I think this was Francesca Block, excellent reporting. It opens by describing a teacher at a public school in Midtown Manhattan here, uh, Susan, who created a poster about how you can tell someone's ethnic identity based on their nose playing into an anti-Semitic trope. There was a hook nose on the uh, on the poster that she drew. The teacher wasn't punished or disciplined by the school or Department of Education. She was awarded, actually, the Big Apple Award, which is the highest distinction in uh, New York City for a teacher. Um, on October 9th of this year, two days after uh, the terrorist attack, that teacher wrote on Instagram, quote, we stand with those still tearing down border walls and we show solidarity with those still fighting to free their stolen land. She had previously written about how her work of, quote, decolonizing education begins in preschool as a, quote, political practice. The rise in anti-Semitism on college campuses since October 7th has been widely reported, but the growing anti-Semitism in public schools has sort of flown under the radar. Um, There's new curricula in California and New York, uh, which lump Jewish people in with white people as oppressors in an oppressor-oppressed paradigm, as we've discussed. Uh, the article includes examples, example after example, of students in public school being bullied and tormented because they're Jewish. And on, on November 9th, teachers and parents organized more than 700 students from 100 public schools across New York City to join in a walkout in Bryant Park. And before the protest, uh, a Brooklyn school board distributed an 11-page day of action toolkit to students that provided them with chats like uh, chants like "We don't want no Zionists here" and "From the river to the sea," uh, which we've discussed at length before. They gave a toolkit to school children, including a slogan calling for the destruction of Israel. The public school system. You live here. What, <laughs> I live here. What the hell's going on in your city? It's. <laughs> a lot's how going is this on okay? in this city. How, how are it's people a- okay with this? No, it's absolutely not okay. But I'm going to say something that's going to be very controversial. But right now, it's a point of view and that people have. And the school system and other public um, institutions Taxpayer are afraid 
to say something against freedom of speech. It's bullshit. It's but, bullshit. But they're afraid to say, well, everyone has a right to give their opinion. But they don't have the right to not teach facts. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where it's starting to boil down. The, it's, it's, it's more surprising to hear it in New York, frankly, because New York is the second largest Jewish community in the world following Israel. And Jews are a minority and a very small minority Tiny. from between if, between the coasts. So it's also a place where people can go to hate. It's easy because most people don't know a lot of Jewish people. It's that us versus them. There's a reason why Donald Trump uses the language he does. And he picks these fights and he wants people to be angry. And I think that this is a bigger part of, of trying to incite hmm. anger. And, when it, and yet, ironically, when it comes to the New York City public schools, it's a, it's a very ultra-progressive point of view that they're afraid to not allow another, to allow different teachings. It should not be accepted, yeah. full stop. But there's also not been enough attention by our elected officials on this issue. Are they afraid the of the teachers' unions? Are they like, where's the political pressure here? Where's the, what, what are they actually afraid of? Oh, I just think they're afraid of, of the blowback of focusing on a minority group, frankly. And that, and it's happened with other groups. We've seen this happen in, in New York public schools with other religious beliefs and requesting days off. I don't know how many days for religious purposes, New York City kids have the day off, but it's a lot. <laughs> and they, they, you can't make everyone happy. But in this particular case, I think they're afraid of the progressive point of view. That's the blowback that they're afraid of from the progressives, not from just us, the people, ordinary folks. I would agree with that, by the way. From what I saw at Columbia at the beginning, when I thought they were frustratingly silent with what was happening, it was... I, I mean, I yes, it was a fear of the progressive point of view, but I'm going to be even bit more specific and controversial. Perhaps it was a specific fear of a pro-Palestinian view, a very, very loud, and and very and very loud pro-Palestinian view. And what's so angering about this? I get so upset about this because it's so not how it's viewed. This conflict for those who actually work on it, um, it's not divided in this pro-Palestinian, pro-Israeli way. And and pro-Palestinian didn't used to be well you know, oh, against the colonizers and against apartheid. And, and oh, you no, you're pro wrong. Those and words are wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And at the end of the day, the, the U.S. Has, had always been, well, we, I always thought, and, and this is what's driving me nuts about this, is sometimes I'm like, you know, the U.S. view, and, I, and obviously we cannot lump it in anymore, but the U.S. view has always been, this is a non-NATO ally. There is a reason this country is our ally. Yeah. And it's not because we felt bad and that we want to, right? No, that it is because it is a country that deserves being our ally because we have a lot of shared national security interests that we work on together in the Middle East. We derive a lot of benefit from that relationship. And, of course, we believe in the reason behind the state of Israel well, it's that it just needs to like, exist. It does, and you can connect that with Ukraine. They are both mm -hmm. front, the front of democracy yeah. in their regions. Exactly. If Israel goes down, the whole region is now... 
Iran. Going to call, yeah, it's Saudi basically Arabia. exactly. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, yeah. it's Iran, it's Saudi Arabia. Mostly Iran. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, yeah. yeah. I'm not. I really don't like yeah. mince words. Yeah. On no, this. Not exaggerating. You know, when I see these people going and chanting, and again, they're very different from, "Hey, we want a free Palestine and have a Palestinian state." Great. So do I. For God's sake, please have two states. But when people are going out and they're saying these slogans, "By any means necessary," and and or or legitimizing October seven, and I'm like, "Oh, I'd like to see what happens when." when you're next to Hamas and what they're going well, to do. Well, here's the crazy the part. All these people who are yelling and screaming these horrible things, they're next on the list. 100%. <laughs> That's what's amazing is, while you want to go after <laughs> the, the Jewish population and say they should be exterminated, basically, because that's what Hamas, and by adopting the river to the sea language, you're saying is that wipe them off the map. Mm -hmm. They're coming. Those people who are going to, take over, and that means Hamas is successful, they're coming after you next. Yes. Because unless you think exactly, unless you are like them, if you were not born into that religion, raised on that religion, believe in that religion, you are an infidel. Mm-hmm. So you're next. Yeah. They don't get that, though. They don't get it. And this is, you know, and I know we're straying away from, from the core of this, but it's it really is all connected. And and I I can't understand really why it's happening, why you have all this denialism, why you have this anti-Semitism. But, but it's very clear to me that, on your point, Susan, that there is a fear of pushing back against it because there's a fear of the progressive voice. And the progressive voice, and I can say it in my own experience with my own show, and as, as Ron mentioned, and I really appreciate your, your words of wisdom, by the way, and, and, and I, just your support. Um, it is, I, the blowback is so ugly. And and mean and nasty and threatening, and why am I not getting that from the other side? By the way, it is a specific way of of how progressives are are pursuing things. And the part that is that is upsetting as well is that I used to view before all this, I viewed Gen Z, and the reason why I target Gen Z is because it's an audience that that they believe in in social justice and they want they're very aware of what's happening around the world and they care deeply about human rights and so on. So this is a group, an audience where you talk to them and they care. And now I I'm changing my entire audience. Just to wrap up this segment, I want to bring in the voice of one Richie Torres, congressman from the Bronx here in New York. A question for those calling for a ceasefire with Hamas. Would you have called for a ceasefire with Nazi Germany under Adolf Hitler, Imperial Japan, ISIS, or Al-Qaeda under Osama bin Laden? Are you typically in favor of keeping genocidal regimes in power or only when the target is the Jewish state? Mic drop. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, uh, let's talk about what we're watching under the radar. Susan, what do you have for us? You know that you set the bar very high. Very <laughs> well, this high. is not going to be one of those. <laughs> Although maybe kind of sorta. I'm going to set the. I'm going to say that I'm going to look back first to the passing of the NDAA, which included section brought by uh, Senators McCain and Rubio that said, a president cannot withdraw from NATO unilaterally. They need to have Senate approval of the Senate or an act of Congress. That is an obvious thing wow. directed at Donald Trump. Yeah. Clearly. And by the way, we had it with the Electoral College um, legislation. But this got passed by the House and no one talked about it. So 
looking forward, Mike Johnson may just find himself maybe not speaker, but he, I think he's going to push to get some votes done and not shut down the country and get this and, and get you got good reason to. Yeah. And to get the Israel funding, Ukraine border security, and he'll make a deal. He hasn't been part of the conversations yet, but I think he's willing to let a minority of Republicans vote for it and a majority of Democrats. I don't know why I feel this way. I think even though he has been an outspoken against almost everything I believe in, but I think he's afraid Ooh. of being the guy who Ooh. caused the shutdown Ooh. and caused like, so a little out of fear. Okay. But that, that's where a, I'm a leaning. A little bit of healthy but, fear? Maybe? But it's a little bit of healthy fear, but that NDAA with yeah. no congressional pushback. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. That's a big deal, actually. Okay. Good one. Uh, Hagar, what'd you bring for us? Okay. I have two, but I'm going to go with one because I know okay. of time. <laughs> but they are both kind of, well, anyway, they, they fall in the same bucket of authoritarians. Okay. Um, so I'm going to close out one of them because I mentioned it earlier, and that's on Venezuela. And um, Venezuela, there was today a prisoner exchange between the United States and Venezuela, Sorry. a big one. And, and without going into the details of that, the reason why this is something I'm following very closely is that we have given Venezuela six months of sanctions relief in exchange for Maduro to uh, to do free and fair elections. And, and just a week ago, uh, a week ago or two, Maduro put a referendum to his people and had them vote on whether Venezuela should take over two-thirds of its neighbor, Guyana, and, and put it to the people and said, should we take over this region of Guyana? It's you want the, democracy? I'll give you democracy. Yeah. <laughs> this, it's called the Essequibo region. It's very rich in oil. Uh, should we take it over and should we make it citizens Venezuelan and should we include them in the map of Venezuela? And 96% allegedly, because let's be real, it's right. not a real, real vote, 96% allegedly voted in favor of this, but we know from, from imagery of... Um, there were no lines at the at the polls that voter turnout was very low. Uh, so now Maduro was like, well, great. Like, you know, now we're going to take Political over two-thirds. And the reason this is so first of all, it's it's nuts, okay? It's batshit crazy. Um, but it's it's also to me a sign of he's looking at his dictator bros you know, she and Putin and, and looking at them and thinking, well, they're trying to make some land grabs. Why don't I make some land grabs for myself? This is an oil-rich region. Um, and 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 I think, it, I think it sounds interesting. Now, the two leaders met last week, the, the leader of Venezuela and the leader of Guyana, and and agreed that they wouldn't, that they would resolve this dispute, not militarily. And, and, and the reason I even hate that they're even, that it's even a dispute because it is, it's a dispute of Maduro's own making. But I think the reason why I'm monitoring it very closely is because we, this is in the middle. First, you've got how he's influenced by what he's seeing dictators around the world do, number one. And number two, we're in the middle of this experiment that Biden, the Biden administration is trying to pursue of, well, wait, maybe we can work with this dictator to try and affect democracy since this the heavy sanctions regime under Trump vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela didn't work. You always give such a yeah, great look ahead because it's something I never thought of. <laughs> really so good. that's a great one. It's, it's fascinating, really right? And you've got yeah. like the global thing. And, yeah. yeah, it's very and good. U.S. policy angle. And, yeah. The other one was just how India tried to assassinate a Sikh leader here in New York. Oh, I know. All right. Well, that's a whole. That's a whole other thing. Uh, I have a, I have a very quick one 
but is nowhere near as interesting as either of those. But because I'm a, um, uh, one of my hobbies is Fed watching. So there's this pivot by uh, Fed Chairman Powell uh, on interest rates. I don't know if you've heard, it's been making headlines, but the thing that I'm most concerned about is Joe Biden putting his thumb on the scale to shape Fed policy because it's going to help him politically. I don't know how to um, state this with enough emphasis, but it's a bad look. And I think too many people don't understand why it's such a bad look. So three weeks ago, Powell said publicly that any talk of rate reductions was premature. It was, it was like, we're not even talking about talking about potentially cutting rates because that's nowhere close to the world that we're living in because we're still trying to tame inflation. Then after the jobs report came out, December 8th, President Biden weighed in saying that the Fed shouldn't raise rates. Now, for a president to do this is extremely rare, and it's extremely rare because it's extremely irresponsible. Why? Because the Fed is supposed to be independent and set monetary policy based on what's best for the U.S. What is monetary policy? Basically, it's about how much money is in the system. What does that mean? How much money your dollar is worth. How much purchasing power you have. And when the president of the United States is putting his thumb on the scale of how an independent agency is supposed to behave with regard to how much purchasing power is in your pocket so that he looks better going into an election year, get the fuck out of here. Presidents have refrained from commenting on Fed policy because it's bad for all of us if their decisions are driven by politics. It's bad when Donald Trump did it, and he did it, by the way, and it's bad when Biden does it. Ron? Yeah. How do you really feel? Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I agree, by the way. Um, Very compelling yeah, I argument. I fired up about so, something that I think um, the, the understandable ignorance of the vast majority of the American public on monetary policy and, uh, and in particular on, you know, in, inflation is something that the Fed exploits, that Congress exploits, that the White House exploits because it's invisible to most people. And and I think it's a crime. Okay, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, we're talking about uh, this vast uh, piece about the New York Times losing its way. Where can everybody find you on the internet, Susan? On Twitter, X, whatever it's called, Del Percio S. <laughs> <laughs> whatever it's called. Hagar. I live- oh, my world. Oh, oh this is going to take a while. <laughs> <laughs> I live more on um, on YouTube, on Instagram and TikTok at at Oh My World Show and at Geek Out with Hagar. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought. We love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.